You're listening to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington podcast. Take a moment to center yourself in this space and enjoy this week's sermon. Now it's time to meet our Zoom pastor for today. Reverend Michael Dowd is a best-selling eco-theologian, TEDx speaker, and pro-science, pro-future advocate whose work has been featured in the New York Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Newsweek, Discover, and on television throughout the US and Canada. His book, Thank God for Evolution, now there's a title, was endorsed by six Nobel Prize winners and many other prominent leaders. Michael has delivered two TEDx talks and a program at the United Nations. I could go on and on, but let's give a welcome to Reverend Michael Dowd. Thank you. So I have two readings to accompany my message this morning. The Both of them are from my great mentor, Joanna Macy, who's 94 years old and uh, one of the saints in this movement. And the title of the sermon, just to preface, is Post-Doom, No Gloom, Staying Sane and Grateful in Crazy-Making Times. So here are the two quotes, readings, the big picture. There is science now to construct the story of the journey that we have made on this earth, the story that connects us with all beings. Right now, we need to remember that story, to harvest it and taste it, for we are in a hard time, and it is the knowledge of the bigger story that is going to carry us through. And then in her her most recent book, A Wild Love for the World, she has got this quote, This is a dark time filled with suffering and uncertainty. Like living cells in a larger body, it is natural that we feel the trauma of our world. So don't be afraid of the anguish you feel or the anger or fear, because these responses arise from the depth of your caring and the truth of your interconnectedness with all beings. So I am a religious naturalist. Connie and I are uh, both religious naturalists. Uh, The key phrase is taking nature to heart. Um, Over the last two decades, uh, I've spoken to about 3,000 groups all over North America. Uh, Unitarian, I think I've spoken in 500 Unitarian Universalist churches and fellowships um, and others with this this world orientation. I've also spoken hundreds of times to Christian churches of all different kinds and more Eastern or New Thought, New Age groups. And I always focus on where science, inspiration, and sustainability intersect. That's my passion. So we did that for 19 years. And then in September of 2020, we moved permanently to Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is where I live now. This is my daughter, at the t- I mean, my granddaughter at the time. Uh, she's now uh, 27 months old. And, um, you know, pretty soon you start helping them walk. And before long, you've got them remodeling you know, houses, and you can't pick up the resilience skills too early, in my opinion. So I had fun with this. So I am an eco-theologian. I have an eco-theo worldview, and it turns out that virtually every sustainable culture in human history had what I am calling an eco-theo 
worldview. That is, the ecology was related to as the heart of theology. The, the, the ecos was divine, and the spirit world was infused, embodied, embedded, revealed in and through the living world. Here's my credo in a nutshell, my faith statement, you could say. Reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. The epic of evolution is my creation story. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spiritual path. And come home is my core message. Now, come home to who? Come home to what? Well, come home to reality. Come home to the body of life as a greater thou, not a lesser it. Come home to your true self. So there's lots of different ways of, of, of interpreting come home, but it's really the heart of my message. So the topic of this morning, staying sane and grateful in crazy-making times. It's helpful to know how we drive ourselves crazy, wallow in misery, and have lots of misery to share with others. And the fundamental thing is when our expectations are not aligned with reality. If you expect that Steven Pinker is right and we're on a perpetual progress, you're going to drive yourself crazy and spread a lot of misery around and be miserable yourself. If you believe that uh, despite all the evidence to the contrary, things are still getting better, they're not contracting, they're not collapsing, well, your expectations don't match reality. If you think that industrial civilization can be made sustainable, you are out of touch with reality. And I'm not just making these bold claims, I'll back them up here in a minute, but the key is to be, the key to making yourself crazy is to blame and judge anyone and anything right? It's the fossil fuel corporations, or it's that other political party, or it's whatever, okay? Or it's the religious fundamentalists, whatever. So to blame, and also to just focus on everything that we're losing. Great way to make yourself miserable and drive yourself crazy, because we are losing a lot, and there will be a lot more that's lost. So the key to staying grateful is to focus on where you can be a contribution to others, where you can be a blessing to others. And really, this serenity prayer, as it's often known, Reinhold Niebuhr penned it in the 1960s. God, oh, you'll notice that I like to spell God, G, earth emoji, D, because any notion of the divine that doesn't include our biophysical creator, sustainer, and end is a woefully inadequate, indeed an ecocidal notion of God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Now, we're all familiar with that, but most of us aren't familiar with the next two lines. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. Think about that for a second. Accepting hardship as the pathway to peace? Like, what's that about? The most important distinction, I think, is to know the difference between problems that can be potentially solved or fixed, and predicaments that can't. Death is not a problem that can be fixed. Death is a predicament. We all got to deal with it, and we're going to die with it. And we are dealing with large-scale predicaments now that do not lend themselves to solutions or fixes. And yet we're used to, because we grew up in the 20th century, if you throw enough energy and human ingenuity uh, at something, you could solve a lot of problems, but not the climate crisis, not the overshoot crisis. And so what a lot of people do, they latch on to hope. Hope is a dangerous belief or a dangerous barrier to acting courageously in dark times. 
In hope, the soul overleaps reality, as in fear, it shrinks back from it. <laughs> I like this. It speaks for itself. Here are six, not just inconvenient truths. These are odious truths that few people know and even fewer can accept. All human-centered civilizations destroy their habitat, then self-destruct. We don't have any examples. We have over 100 examples, and we don't have any counterexamples in human history. Technology and the market cannot save us from the ecocide they always create. One of the things I've done the last nine years is study the history of technology from spears and fire chuckers and things like that. And any technology that benefits humans but doesn't become food for other creatures at its end and benefit other creatures as well is always creates more problems than it solves. It just does it over time. Climate change is not our worst predicament. Ecological overshoot is. I'll come back to that in a minute. We are decades into abrupt climate mayhem. That's like 10,000 years of climate change in half a human lifetime. We're decades into abrupt climate mayhem, unstoppable collapse, and a mass extinction that will likely include most plants, animals, and humans, and not some distant thing. Talk about by 2040, 2050 at the, at the outset. That's why all this talk about net zero by 2050 is complete insanity. And denying the above betrays ignorance of what I'm calling the five main drivers of collapse in ecocide. What are the things that cause and drive ecocide? I do a whole program on that. And increases the likelihood of many nuclear meltdowns in the next couple of decades. There's going to be some nuclear meltdowns, no doubt. But whether we have five in the next 50 years or 200, there's actually 440 nuclear reactors. If we don't get those spent fuel rods out of the swimming pools, and we're not going to do that if we think civilization has eternal life. We're going to procrastinate that. We're going to delude ourselves into thinking that there won't be power outages and things like Fukushima and everything else. And the other odious truth is that most people will deny all this as long as possible, and we'll all suffer accordingly. I'll come back here to the climate change is not our worst predicament. But first, I want to talk about denial because denial often gets a bad rap. Denial is a healthy, normal, natural part of our brains. Denial is the largely unconscious habit of thought, whereby we refuse to accept the reality of things that are bad or upsetting or that challenge our worldview, our legacy, how we live, what is required of us, and or our feelings of self-worth or superiority. Denial is also the instinctual impulse to reject or discount information that calls into question our hopes, assumptions, or expectations about the future. I have denial instincts. You have denial instincts. Everybody we know and love has denial instincts, so we can have compassion for ourselves and each other. And as I mentioned, it often gets a bad rap. Denial is often adaptive inattention. One of my favorite quotes from Stephen Jenkinson, he says, inattention, that is not paying attention to the world's ecological state, is well advised because attention to it mitigates against your happiness, your contentment, and your sense of well-being. Having a conscience now is a grief-soaked proposition. Whatever spiritual awakening may have meant in past times and places, if you awaken in our time, you awaken with a sob. I don't advocate hope, nor do I advocate hopelessness. 
hope-free grief is paramount. It's so important. Another quote from Stephen Jenkinson, he says, grief requires us to know the time we're in. The great enemy of grief is hope. Hope is the four-letter word for people who are unwilling to know things for what they are. Our time requires us to be hope-free, to burn through the false choice of being hopeful or hopeless. There are two sides of the same con job. Grief is required to proceed. And Joanna Macy famously said, the depth of your grief is the measure of your love. You wouldn't be feeling grief if you didn't love. And of course, grief isn't just a feeling. There are the, the well-known stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross shared, denial, anger, bargaining, depression. Finally, acceptance, collapse acceptance, and the possibility of near-term human extinction. And then finding the gifts. What are the benefits on the other side of acceptance? And then gallows humor. And these first four, this is really doom and gloom. You bounce back and forth. Hope, fear, hope, fear, hope, fear. That's where most people are at. It's doom and gloom. Or the denial of it. And yet post-doom, no gloom, is in this place of acceptance. And even beyond acceptance, trust. Trust that it couldn't have been otherwise. We have 7,000 years of human-centeredness that has led to the predicament that we're now in. It's not something that was just caused in the last 300 years. And so Gallo's humor, I love this one. Please note, the post-apocalyptic fiction section has been moved to current affairs. I know you wrote this as a bleak vision of a dystopian future, but today we can sell it as a fond remembrance of the good old days. A few of us are going out after work to pretend it's not the end of the world if you want to join us. Being a dinosaur sounds kind of nice. No bills, no work, just extinct. These aren't humor. These are just heartful stuff. Ah, kindness. What a simple way to tell another struggling soul that there is love to be found in the world. People will sometimes say, it's too late. It's too late. No, it's not too late to be a loving person. It's not too, too late to be kind and generous. It's not too late to serve your community. No matter how educated, talented, rich, or cool you believe you are, how you treat people ultimately tells all. And it's not just people, how you treat other creatures. This is the fundamental issue, is that our main problem isn't climate change. It's overshoot, of which global warming is but a symptom. These are the things that we activists focus on. Climate mayhem, death of the oceans, the extinction, topsoil poisoning and loss, critical resource depletion, chemical and nuclear wastes, the growing gulf between the rich and the poor, economic instability and insanity, political polarization and conflict, contracting of in-groups, and the rise of totalitarianism and other isms. These are the things that we activists understandably focus on, and yet all of these aren't the problem. They are all symptoms of ecological overshoot of caring capacity. That, that caring capacity is that there's a limited amount that we can take from the living world, and there's a limited amount of waste that we can exude to the living world before the systems start breaking down. That's the carrying capacity. I call it grace limits. There's a limit to how much we can take and how much toxic waste that we can give before we lose the grace of the living world. And the key thing that determines whether a society is ecologically sound or not is how we measure and define wealth, well-being, and success. 
If we measure wealth, well-being, and success in human-centered terms, you know, the wealth of emperors, kings, GDP, corporations, or whatever, that's insane. That's ecocidal. The only sane measure of wealth and well-being, and every sustainable culture in history knows this, is life-centered measures of wealth, well-being, and success. How well is the soil doing decade by decade? How well are the forests doing decade by decade? How well are the other species doing decade by decade? What's the carbon in the atmosphere decade by decade? These are the only sane measures of wealth, well-being, and success. And these first three are already in extinction level runaway mode. They're already out of our control. Even if we could somehow fix climate, which we can't, there are half a dozen other planetary boundaries that we have already overshot. And most of these are extinction level. It just takes time. Here's the painful but vital truth for us, because again, the key to staying heartful and sane and grateful in collapsing crazy-making times is to understand the nature of reality, accept it, and then find ways to be a profound contribution to your communities. So the stability of the biosphere has been in decline for centuries and an unstoppable collapse for decades. This great acceleration of technology and market-driven ecocide is an easily verifiable fact. The scientific evidence is overwhelming. In fact, all you have to do is Google great acceleration and you'll find all of these charts. Evidence is also compelling that the vast majority of people will deny this, especially those still benefiting from the existing order, those legitimately concerned about the consequences of collapse, and those who fear that accepting reality means giving up. And yes, almost all of us fit into that paragraph. The history of more than 80 previous boom and bust, rise and fall, progress, regress societies clearly reveals how and why Homo Colossus is destined for near-term extinction. Homo Colossus is William Catton's term for industrial humanity. It's where each of us uses 30 to 50 times the resources and exudes 30 to 50 times the waste of Homo sapiens. Homo Colossus is destined for near-term extinction. That may or may not mean the extinction of Homo sapiens. We don't know, but it's certainly a possibility. And paradoxically, collapse acceptance and unattached love and action can help us live fully, joyfully, and meaningfully, even at Teotihuacan. And Teotihuacan is the end of the world as we know it. And when I, I'm introducing the concept to some people who are not familiar with it, I simply say, oh, Teotihuacan, it's, it's a Native American term. It means things are spiraling down, but look for opportunities to be a blessing to others and you'll be fine. We're used to thinking of civilization as a positive thing. This is a tragic error. These quotes will call into question that. Forests precede civilizations and deserts follow them. All of our exalted technological progress, civilization for that matter, is comparable to an axe in the hand of a pathological criminal. Civilization is a hopeless race to discover remedies for the evils it produces. The end of the human race will be that it will eventually die of civilization. And the earth is littered with the ruins of empires and civilizations that once believed they were eternal. Now, these are heavyweight quotes. And this last one isn't an exaggeration. The BBC, three years ago, had a Deep Civilization series 
an article by Luke Kemp, are we on the road to civilizational collapse? And of course he answered yes. And he's got this chart of 88 ancient civilizations. This is just from 3000 before the common era to a thousand of the common era, just that 4,000 year period. If you go back before 3000 BCE, or you look at the last 1,000 years, it's well over 100. And as the famous uh, historian of the 20th century, Arnold Toynbee said, great civilizations are not murdered, they take their own lives. And we know how. How human civilizations commit ecocide, commit suicide. And this is just the last 5% of human history. For the vast majority of human history, we live more or less sustainably. But here's the pattern, there's over 80 examples. Usually it takes between 225 and 325 years. Progress, rise, boom, at least for the elites, not for the slaves, obviously, in civilizations that had slaves. Overshooting the carrying capacity is this whole process. And then finally it reaches a peak and then there's regress, fall, bust. And that usually happens faster than the rise. And this, this is an unstoppable process of collapse. Totally, there's no examples in human history of any culture becoming sustainable as it's on its way down. It can't be done for very well-known reasons. And the interesting thing is our feelings, our expectations. Because if you're born and you die in times of progress, hey, you just expect your kids and grandkids are going to have it easier and better and wealthier than you. And if you're born and die in times of regress, in times of fall, in times of bust, well, of course, your kids and grandkids are going to have it more difficult than you. That's just the nature of the times you live in. It's when you're born in times of expansion and it shifts in your lifetime. And yes, that's all of us on this call right now and in this church. That's what we call suffering until you accept it. So you, denial and doom, that doom, hope, fear, hope, fear, and resenting it. It's like, why? All of this, that's how you could drive yourself crazy, is resented. Post-doom, no gloom, is this place of hope-free acceptance, realizing that it's unstoppable. There's nothing we can do about it. If 8 billion people woke up tomorrow morning committed to becoming eco-saints, or if 8 billion people died tonight in their sleep, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide would continue to rise. It's already unstoppable. It's got nothing to do with us. The forests of the world are burning. The permafrost is releasing methane, etc. So this is the last scary slide that I'll share. <laughs> no matter what, no matter what we do, these tipping points are already in the rearview mirror. You'll hear the IPCC and other scientists say, we're at risk of passing. Nonsense. We ran over that dog 20 years ago. These are in the rearview mirror. The loss of the world's ice. Arctic, Greenland. West Antarctica and East Antarctica, and the mountain glaciers. This is unstoppable. And there have been three major books on this topic. Henry Pollock actually is a neighbor, just lives over in Ann Arbor, A World Without Ice in 2010. Peter Wadhams, the leading scientist in the world on this topic, 2017, A Farewell to Ice. And then Dar Jamel's The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. Probably the, my favorite book on climate change. Because when most of the Arctic sea ice is gone is when the serious global warming begins. And I'm not going to talk about this right now, but it's basically if you've got ice in your cup and the sun is hitting it, the water stays at 32 degrees until the ice melts. And then all of a sudden, wow, it just skyrockets. Methane belching, the permafrost, 
methane hydrates and clathrates that is deep down in the ocean and on the shallow shelves. Tropical wetlands, a major paper in Science Magazine just came out. Science Journal just uh, maybe three weeks ago on tropical wetlands that are already in unstoppable runaway mode. Ocean acidification, ocean deoxygenation, and at least 25 feet of abrupt nonlinear sea level rise. That, that fits and starts. And, and I just talked last week to John Englander. He's a former CEO of the Jacques Cousteau Society. He's the leading expert in the world, at least in the English language, on rising seas. And he confirmed that, yes, it doesn't matter what we do. And if everybody went extinct tonight, the seas would continue to rise 20 to 40 feet over the next 200 years. It's unstoppable. The great conflagration of the world's forests. We will see bigger forest fires, more intense and hotter forest fires, more forest fires all over the world. It's, and it's, it's out of, even if we could somehow limit carbon emissions, which we're not going to do, still methane, nitrous oxide, and carbon dioxide are in runaway. The loss of most species, animal and plant, on land and in lakes, rivers, and oceans. And increasingly severe and deadly weather, storms, floods, droughts, hurricanes, and so on. Al Gore likes to say that turning on the news anymore is like taking a nature walk through the book of Revelation. This is something that we activists have a tough time swallowing. It's a bitter pill. And yet we're going to drive ourselves crazy and spread a lot of misery around if we don't understand this. That we are already two to three decades into abrupt runaway and exponentially accelerating climate mayhem. And don't take my word on it. Here's the IPCC. All of these are the cops, you know, the conference of the parties. These are all the, you know, up through COP24. These are all our agreements, our pledges, our promises. And they're actually worse than meaningless because they give us the delusion that we're making progress when the actual opposite is the case. I mean, look, for example, in the 1960s, carbon parts per million was rising at 0.9% parts per million per year. In the 1970s, 1.3 parts per million per year. In the 1980s and 90s, one and a half parts per million per year. In the 2000s, 2.0 parts per million per year. And 2.4, we're actually already up to 2.6. In 2022, we're already up to 2.6 parts per million per year. And that's just the CO2. When you add carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, it's actually, we're well over 500 parts per million in terms of carbon dioxide equivalent. So I want to bring this around to how do we stay sane? How do we stay grateful in the midst of all this depressing stuff? Well, there are certain, when we come to, again, that serenity prayer, <laughs> may I have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Well, you can't change the fact that we're living in a radically unsustainable ecocidal civilization that's well on its way to collapse, the biosphere is collapsing, you can't stop that. And so accepting that then allows certain benefits because collapse awareness is the booby prize. And while acceptance can be redemptive, it is collapse trust that transforms lives. Here are just my short list of what I consider the benefits of collapse trust that you can't get if you're in denial you can't get if you're in anger or bargaining. You know, if we all just get solar panels or if we all just get wind turbines, or if we just enact a Green New Deal, you, these benefits will elude you. Clarity over confusion. 
compassion over blame, and love and action over desperate activism. Those three things, clarity, compassion, and courageous love and action is only possible when you truly accept that we are in an unstoppable process of collapse. It reprioritizes nearly everything around what matters most and what doesn't. It's kind of like getting a, a terminal diagnosis. We actually have a terminal diagnosis. We're all part of homo colossus and homo colossus is dying and it's happening fairly rapidly. And so when you truly accept, I mean, there's some people that get, get a terminal diagnosis and they fight it until a week before they die. And so they only have a week of the peace that passes understanding when they truly accept that they're mortal, they're going to die. And they haven't had time to clean up their lives and stuff. So it reprioritizes everything. I went through a very serious bout of cancer not, uh, 13 years ago, and I had a tumor the size of my fist and my spleen. And if the chemo didn't work, I was going to die in eight to 10 months. And I had, after a few days of freak out, I had the peace that passes understanding because I felt grateful for the past. I felt trust in the future, including a future that very well might not include me much longer. And then I was just grateful to live each day, not taking anything for granted. I don't take any season for granted. Connie and I actually ritualize and say goodbye to each season. And we say, if we never experience you again, if one, of, one or both of us dies before you come around next year, we just cherish what a blessing you've been. And sometimes I start crying. A calm urgency to get complete with self, family, others, life, and legacy. It focuses attention on home, family, community, what's local, what's joyful, what's meaningful. Freedom from a whole bunch of shoulds, oughts, and have tos, and freedom fors, coulds, mights, get tos. And then usually an overwhelming gratitude for the gift of simply being alive, aware, and able to feel deeply. I can still go to the grocery store and buy groceries. I can still put gas in my car. Four years from now, that might not be possible in the same way that it is now. Could be sooner than that, too. And an expanded sense of self or identity. Alan Watts famously called it the skin encapsulated ego. The idea that our self stops with our skin. No. Earth is your larger self. The Milky Way is your larger self. The whole universe is your larger self. Like nesting dolls, we are part of that. And so we can identify with this larger reality of which we're a part and upon which we totally depend. And we recognize the, that impermanence and death are sacred. Death is no less sacred than life. You don't need to do everything. Do what calls your heart. Effective action comes from love. It is unstoppable and it is enough. So I want to conclude with these three quotes. Do not lose heart. We were made for these times. We need courage, not hope, to face climate change. Courage is the resolve to do well without the assurance of a happy ending. Just because we can't save everything doesn't mean there's not a tremendous amount of great work that we can do that's soul-nourishing and can benefit your community. Just building topsoil is a blessing to other creatures. I love this. Chris Martinson, very practical. Plant a garden. Meet your neighbor, practice generosity, learn new skills, control what you can, and leave the rest. Thank you. Thank you.
I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.ucl.org, where you can find more information about our grounds, staff, and upcoming events. You can also subscribe to our e-news there and learn about our virtual service offerings. We'll see you next week.